What happens when missionaries lose support or need help in areas of their lives and ministries that are uncomfortable? We'll talk about that and more. This is the Engaging Missions Show, episode 194 with Keith Smith. Welcome to the Engaging Missions Show, where we are bringing missions home. Here's your host, Brian Ensminger. Thanks so much for joining us. It is absolutely wonderful to have you here. Just a heads up, this one's a bit longer than usual, but it is so good. You're going to want to stick around to the end to hear the whole thing. And also, because I have some community news, an exciting way to engage that's coming up in a couple of weeks and more. Also, before we start talking to Keith Smith, I just want to remind you that Ramadan is coming up in just a couple of weeks. This is a great time to pray that God would reveal himself to those who are seeking. If you haven't already, get your prayer guide at 30daysprayer.com. That's 30daysprayer.com. Today's topic might be a little bit uncomfortable. And before we get into it, I want to say to you that it's not my heart. It's not my goal to shame anybody or create fear or anything else like that that's even remotely related to condemnation. But I do want to shed a little bit of light on what might be considered by some as a dark little secret in the world of sending missionaries. Keith Smith, who was with us back in episode 179, is going to be rejoining us today to talk about missionaries losing the support of their sending churches or organizations once they're sort of out on the front lines. And I'm using that language not to make it sound like other believers in other callings don't matter, but to remind us that many times they're miles and time zones away from their material and emotional support, the people who have provided that for them. And this could be something all the way from an organization perhaps completely walking away from a missionary, perhaps failing to offer or taking away financial, spiritual, or emotional support, or maybe failing to offer pastoral care in times of crisis. And Keith, because of his background, his experience, his training is uniquely qualified to share with us about what this, what kind of things happen because he helps missionaries going through this kind of thing. So Keith, welcome back to the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it is absolutely my pleasure. And as we're getting into this, I would imagine that perhaps a few people who are listening have not ever even considered that once a missionary's on the field, so to speak, that there's the opportunity that they might not have the support that they need. How big of a problem is this? It's very hard to quantify because when you get a group of missionaries together, we speak about it. But it's not (laughs) something we speak about openly. But just from the people I met, anecdotally, I can say it's probably... 50 or more percent of all missionaries experience this to some extent during their ministry. So it's a big problem. Wow. As as I say, it's a dark little secret. We don't like to talk about it. You know, nice Christian people, we we, want to be with each other and help each other. Sometimes we need to admit the truth. Yeah, and, and I think that's good because, you know, we, we want to walk in unity and we want to look toward the good things, but just simply covering over something that's that dark little secret, that, that can allow that kind of thing to fester. I'm wondering, as you've experienced this, you know, through other people, as you've helped other people through this, have you identified any key reasons why this kind of thing might happen, why these relationships might be broken or commitments might not be honored? What What leads to that kind of thing? Well... Firstly, there's simple personal personality problems as people meeting with one another. It can just happen that personality conflicts arise. Instead of sitting down and talking, we just turn our back and walk away. That probably accounts for 15% of the people I talk to. Very often, and I, I wouldn't put it more than about 20% of the people I'm talking to, there is a a sin or a lifestyle issue that needs to be addressed. But it needs to be addressed in grace. It needs to be addressed in, in the Jesus way, <laughs> extending grace so that that person can be fully restored. Very often it's a lack of preparation. Hmm. Uh, missionary is not properly 
aware of the situation they're going into. We have a young missionary here in Germany at the moment, and he came about a year ago, and he visited Germany many times in the past, but he made the fatal mistake that many missionaries make, that he's come and visited the country as a visitor and didn't understand that when he actually came to live in the country, the way he would be received by the local people is very different. He's not a visitor bringing money to the economy. He's hmm. somebody who's going to tell them that perhaps they need to live in a different way or have different expectations or help them in inverted commas. Then there are clashes about doctrine and policy. Sometimes mission agencies, mission-sending churches change their policy, and I've seen this so often. And, and yet they've made a commitment to somebody on the field. That person on the field hasn't changed, and yet the sending church or sending ministry has changed its policy. Hmm. And that can be very serious, very seriously affect, affected me in as much as I have always been a house church person working with small churches, small groups, and yet, mm -hmm. because somebody knew that in the past I had led a big charismatic church, the mission-sending group decided I should work with big charismatic churches. Mm. And yet, my emphasis has always been small churches. And really, that's where I'm gifted. I'm not gifted in the big meeting. So, the changes of policy can be big problems big problems. Yeah. Now, you mentioned a minute ago that sometimes maybe missionaries don't receive the training or preparation that they need. You've also mentioned some stuff about policy changes, things like that. As you think about some of the missionaries that you've worked with, if somebody's going through a deputation process or they're beginning to raise funds or that kind of thing, are there any indicators that they should look for in either their own lives or perhaps in the, the people that they're partnering with to help them understand whether or not this, this might become a problem? I think openness, being able to communicate freely about the worst things in your own life is mm. one of the most important things that missionaries have. Yesterday, I had a visit from a Muslim friend, a man who is a recent refugee here in, in Germany, and he is a Muslim. And I was able to relate from my personal faith walk mm. how I had confronted some problems here in Germany. And immediately he not only identified with the issue, but he was able to translate it into a term that made him open for me to talk more about Jesus. So me being very open and vulnerable with a man that, whose faith I do not share allowed him to become open and vulnerable to receive my witness of Jesus. Very important. Wow. The, the, the other thing is that if there is a lack of communication from the sending agency or church. I realized that when I was going through difficulties with a church that was supporting us, they just stopped communicating. And the reason they stopped communicating was that they didn't fully understand our situation because they were in Britain, uh, nice Western European country, and they assumed that Spain and later Germany was exactly the same cultural standards as Britain. And Spain and Germany are very different countries to Britain. And we assume because we're Western Europeans, we're all the same. And Americans coming here have the same problem. Many yeah. Americans assume because we're we live in or come from Western democratic countries, that it's just like home. 
It's not. I have had to help so many Americans, especially in Spain, come to terms with the fact that Spain is not Mexico. Because they often did their training on the border of Texas or Mexico. And mm-hmm. training's very good, but it's not Spain. Right. So when when you think about missionaries who are often impacted by this kind of thing. I, I guess I want to kind of highlight that, you know, something like this, where there's that, that relationship between a church and a missionary, between two organizations, between some, some people, when, when that relationship's broken, it impacts not only the, the missionary, but also the, the church or the organization that was working with them. And we're focusing primarily on that missionary. But w- when we think about those broken relationships, what kind of impact does that have beyond the simple, you know, I, I don't have that money coming in anymore? What, what other impacts happen? Yeah, this is the most difficult prayer. The missionary begins to feel very isolated. The, the, the mm. proper word would be bereft. It's like your best friends have turned on you. Now, yeah. we know that, you know, yes, they, the, the sending church and agency might be best friends, but they're probably not. That's just their ministry and they're fulfilling their ministry. But it feels as though, as though you are totally alone. And the missionary begins to go through a grief process and as if they've lost a loved one. And, and, and that's what it is. Hmm. But alternatively, the, the supporting church that has withdrawn their support, they see some of the difficulties that the missionaries experiencing and Counterintuitively, it makes them hardened against missions. Hmm. Do we want to give our money to somebody who can't cope with these problems? And uh, I've I've actually spoken in churches who, who become very hardened against the missionaries that, in fact, they have abused. I can think of one situation in France where a missionary had 100% of his support withdrawn. Now, fortunately, a lot of his ministry focused around his own house where he lived. And so he was able to continue that ministry and and start looking for other support. But Hmm. the, the church involved became very hardened against that missionary and against the concept of mission that that man was doing. As far as the mission agencies are concerned, um, I see them become more pragmatic and businesslike. Instead of realizing we're people dealing with people, Hmm. they become very hardened and businesslike. And I, I don't want to name anybody, but I can I can yeah, think yeah. of some missions who are particularly working with young people, and it, it is almost like dealing when you talk to them. It's almost like dealing with a business, and not a mission, not mm. a ministry where we're real people talking to human situations, and that's a real danger. Yeah, and. I believe it's intimately connected with the breakdown of relationships between missionaries and their supporters. Yeah, you know, you, you mentioned that that breakdown in relationships. We've also talked a little bit about, you know, some some pressure sometimes. I think the last time we talked, there's sometimes some pressure to put your best face forward, so to speak, and. I wonder sometimes if the fear of losing support or potential backlash maybe encourages missionaries to begin walking in isolation because they're afraid to share something because it might make people think differently or maybe perhaps lose their support. It's kind of a two-pronged thing. One, I'm wondering if that kind of thing begins to eat away at the the relationship and perhaps then causes them to not get help in areas of their life where they need it. And conversely, if they do share it, I'm wondering if that sometimes causes the church to kind of walk away from them and 
and go, I don't know if I've got the, the time or the resources to invest in this person. So let's, let's invest in somebody else who we think can give us better results. Does, does that play into this kind of thing? It does. And this is why I said right at the beginning, a missionary must be a person who is prepared to lay bare his life. Mm. We know that Paul, for example, was not, you know, when he wrote letters sometimes, he said, look, I was the worst persecutor of Christians. Mm. You know, I was there when Christians were killed. I am not a nice person, but God's given me his grace. And we need to be able to express our fears openly that way. Often I will go into churches and talk about my my problems first hmm. because we have this crazy idea that the church is a university for saints, <laughs> not a school for sinners. We all have to learn to to be open to receive healing. Yeah. I, I, I often talk about healing when I, I do teddy bear therapy. I, I talk about healing as a three-stage process. First, we need our spirit healed. Spiritually, we know we are dead. Without Christ, we are dead. We need to receive his life into us. But then our soul needs healing because without Christ, we haven't had those right relationships or the right basis to have those right relationships and, yeah. uh, and so we've been damaged and hurt in our soul. And when those two things come into order, then perhaps we can look into our physical life, our, our bodies, our walk in the world, and, and, and healing comes step by step. And, you know, I, I could teach on that for a weekend, but <laughs> it's... <laughs> it's we must be aware that we it's like Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. The first thing you have to admit in Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm an alcoholic, I have a problem. You yeah. know, and we need to be open to say things like that. And that means we have to be self-aware. We have to ask ourselves, am I the problem? What have I been doing that's contributed to this breakdown in relationship? So we've talked about some of the reasons that this kind of thing can happen. Now I want to maybe fast forward a little bit and I I don't want to name any names or anything like that because we definitely want to keep confidences, but let's, let's say that there's a missionary who's out there, so to speak, they're on assignment and they suddenly discover that a significant portion of their support is gone, whether that's financial or emotional or spiritual, there's their, their support is gone. They're multiple time zones away from family and friends. They're in a largely unfamiliar culture. What are the first couple of things they should do right then? First, and it's always the answer, pray. Prayer is the most important. You can't make any progress without prayer. Although sometimes Mm. the person becomes so depressed and down that even prayer becomes hard. And we're often talking about very mature Christians become depressed and, and find prayer difficult. But prayer is the most important. Second, we need to be able to talk to trusted friends. They might be in different time zones, but for example, Gina and I have friends in in America that we know we can call, even if we have to wake them up out of bed, we can call mm-hmm. them to talk about issues. And equally, they know they can call us. But secondly, or thirdly, the we, we must openly have an open dialogue with the people who deserted us and with the people who are left. I think when I, when I think of, of things that have affected me in the past, I worked very hard to keep channels of communication open. And even one time I, I saw a damaging situation that was affecting me, I scraped together every last dollar I had 
and got on a plane and went to physically see the people to have a face-to-face dialogue to make sure we were still talking the same language. And in fact, that, that resolved the problem. And uh, uh, just, just by being able to turn up and speak to them resolved the problem immediately. So it's, yeah. it's keeping an open dialogue is very important. So you mentioned a, f- a few key people to, to reach out to, to keep that dialogue open, things like that. I'm wondering, is there any, anyone in particular that they should not reach out to in that situation? Yes. There's one place I would not go because it leads to negativism and criticism. And that's mm. don't go to another sending organization. I can think of one man, and I was helping him in his situation on the field. Basically, he'd gone back on furlough, and whilst he was on furlough, his sending organization, which was very good, sent him on retreat to a center where they have very good psychological help for missionaries just to help them think about what they're doing. Whilst he was there, the psychologist at this centre recognised he had a serious problem in his marriage. Hmm. And knowing that I lived nearby, the mission sending organisation contacted me and said, Keith, will you help this person? So I said, well, I will do what I can. Now, he was sent back. To the field, I spent one or two hours with him every week working through some of the issues with his wife, Mm. working through some of the issues in that marriage, and then he withdrew. He said, no, I don't want any more counselling. I'm a mature Christian. I know I can just take this matter to Jesus. Okay? The response from Mm. his mission-sending organisation, I was prepared to continue supporting him. But the response from his mission sending organization was to put a lot of pressure on him to come back to counseling with me. What he chose to do at that point was to go and speak to another mission sending organization. The other mission sending organization, which did not begin to offer the support of the first group, criticized the first group took his 10 15% that he was uh, paying for their services and he left the first group to join the second group. The problem is the issues in his marriage were never resolved. He never really returned to the field. This man now lives in another part of the world, but he is not ministering as he was before. He's not a missionary anymore. So, yes, there are definitely people you don't talk to, people who are going to criticize and instead of find solutions. All right. So, Keith, is I guess I should say before I ask the next question, we've, we've had a little bit of technical difficulties, so it's going to sound a little bit different from this point forward, but Keith is sharing some amazing stuff, and I don't want to cut that off just because we're having some computer problems. So, Keith, you shared that story about how the, the missionary was having some, some marital difficulties and some stuff like that, and I'm, I'm wondering now, in that situation, you're in relationship with him, you're working with him on that, and you're in a bit of a touchy situation because you need to be you need to have some level of confidentiality so that he can open up and share his heart and work through some stuff at the at the same time you want to make sure that you're not setting the missions organization up for failure how are you able to walk in that and keep confidences and and all and all of that stuff how do you do that it's very hard it's something that psychologists have to deal with every single day very often I come across information that needs to be shared, perhaps with a mission organization, perhaps with the authorities. And yet there is still a duty to keep confidentiality. Hmm. I look at it this way. 
I would never repeat anything that is said to me by a missionary or, or somebody I'm working with. But I do have boundaries. For example, if you tell me that you are going to commit suicide, I will not let you commit suicide. I will do something, even if I have to make sure that the police come and take you to a, a mental hospital, I will do what I can to prevent you from harming yourself or anybody else. Mm. If you tell me that you have committed certain crimes, the law says I have to speak to the authorities about that. But by and large, I keep confidences. And this perhaps is part of the difficulty that some mission-sending organisations have with using somebody like myself. Sometimes the mission-saving organisations that ask me to share with people want me to give them feedback, want me to tell them what we've been talking about. And I will not do that. Um, I will help the missionary that they've sent me to speak to, but there's no way in which I will give them a recording of our meeting or even talk about some of the personal issues we've covered I want them to trust me to be professional and do my job. And if there's something that the mission-sending organization needs to know, then I will speak to the missionary in such a way that they themselves will speak to the mission-sending organization about it. Hmm. If they withdraw from the process, then I will tell the mission sending organization, this missionary has withdrawn from the process, but I won't tell them why, because often it's very personal issues. All right. So, Keith, you mentioned that sometimes when a missionary leaves their their time with you, that, you know, you might share with the organization that they've left, but you don't necessarily share with them any specifics. And I, I certainly understand that in terms of confidentiality. But I'm wondering, is there ever any kind of backlash from that? Yes, very often there is. Mission organizations seem to think that because either they've asked me to intervene or asked me to get involved or maybe they've paid me or somebody's paid me, then they have a right to know what, what's been going on. And it shows a basic misunderstanding of the role of the professional counselor or or psychologist, and the truth is, I will tell other people if I think there is a danger to the person that I'm counselling, or that they are a danger to anybody else. That is my legal obligation, and it's the same is true anywhere in the world, and I will do that. So if I think that a missionary on the field is in danger or his family are in danger, then I will inform the mission-sending organization. But I, I wouldn't do that ordinarily. Yeah. So, we, you know, we've, we've probably spent a bit of time now talking about, you know, what happens when things go wrong. And I'm, I'm wondering now, because you've had a lot of experience with this, what kind of things become possible when the process works right, when people are able to walk through this and get the support and the healing that they need at a difficult time? Well, I, I'm just thinking of somebody who talked to me yesterday. This person first came into contact with me about three years ago, and it was clear that they, that they long-term missionary, been on the field for 28 years, hmm. really understands missions and all of the vagaries of missions, but in the past three years, shall we say, lost our direction a little bit. Hmm. And what I've been doing for the past you know, three years is talking with them through their walk, through what they're doing, through their relationships um, and other things. And we, we actually made a visit to be with them and, and it was good. Now, the interesting thing is when we visited them, it was clear there was some things about their personal life at home that nobody in the area knew about. Mm. 
we only got to know about it because we lived with them in their house. And we were able to address directly some of those things that nobody knew about. Wow. And probably they would never have been speaking about. Well, just talking to me yesterday, this missionary told me that not only he was thankful for the time he spent with them, but that the situation is now so improved that he is looking forward to getting involved in new things and new ministries. In fact, he's getting involved in supporting other missionaries in wow. the field in his area simply from one visit from me. Now, it's not because I'm a wonder man. <laughs> it's because he bothered to be vulnerable with me so and listen, and then we were able to address some of the issues. Wow. And, and, and so, yeah, a lot of things are much, much better. But it's got to be real. You know, people have got to be open to address their areas. Some people... It's not always positive. Some people haven't lived listened to what we've said. Hmm. They have gone off the field, and yet they're still presenting to other people that they are on the field. And so we have a phenomenon that I, I call lying missionaries. And this is something that worries me very much. When we ask for support as missionaries, we often have to make a big show, inverted commas, of what we do. Um, as I've said before, it's very difficult to me to make a show of what I do because it's in the background. Mm. Nobody sees what we do. It's like people who teach missionary kids. It's in the background. Nobody sees it. But in making a show, sometimes people tell lies. Mm. When I was a missionary in Spain, the local town hall was so impressed at the work that my wife and I were doing, they gave us, free of charge, a meeting hall and office. And as house churches, we didn't really use the meeting hall very much, but it was a big bonus for us. And we had a big sign outside that said, you know, church in, in the town, in our town. And a missionary, an American missionary, came and visited our church and spoke one Sunday. And I was surprised that somebody else sent me a copy of this man's missionary newsletter only to see that he published that this was a church that he'd helped start <laughs> and uh, that he'd paid for Nobody paid for it. The town hall paid for it. And that, you know, this was a great mission work of his ministry. And it's interesting. I counted up, the last time I counted up, that church was claimed by four different missionaries. Wow. Who claimed that they helped start it. The truth is none of them helped start it. It was start, the, the, the actual church that met there was started by an Argentinian brother and I, and the church was paid for by the local town council because they were impressed at the services that we were offered in, in, in helping the town address some psychosocial issues. Wow. Um, they paid for it. Um, so, yeah, there's good things and bad things. And all of these need to be addressed. If somebody, I have a problem. And the problem is if somebody feels that they have to tell lies in order to gain or keep their support, then the relationship between the missionary and the supporter is toxic from the very start. And, and, and that's not helpful for anybody. It's certainly not helpful for the church. It's certainly not a blessing to the town where they are because they have to tell lies about the town where they are Yeah. in, in order to, to get support. Now, because I won't do that, perhaps we don't have enough support. <laughs> but, but I would rather be honest. I'd rather stand before the Lord and say, well, I did what I did with what I had. 
rather than try and have artificial support. Yeah, you know, that reminds me of the, the parable of the talents, you know, where the, the master gives three different servants different amounts, and he doesn't make the person with one talent responsible to produce what the same thing as what the person with ten talents was given. Their only call is to be faithful with what they've been given. And, man, that's powerful. It, it is powerful. Um, as I... Uh, I was telling you a little bit earlier before we started this call, I've had a crazy morning. Yeah. And one of the things we, my wife and I do is help refugees who've come into Europe in the past two, three, three years. And um, one of the, we don't, you know, there's no way, nobody pays us for doing that. This is something we do because we have a heart to do it for people who are, are displaced. Now, there is one charity that works in our town that works with this. Uh, they get paid a lot of money by the regional authorities to to work among refugees. Hmm. But what they're doing is they're using the money for themselves, not for helping refugees. So the refugees who aren't receiving any help come to my wife and I. Hmm. I actually spend their time with my wife and I because... Although we can't give them anything physical, we do give them support, hope, prayer, and lots of other things that mm -hmm. are intangible. So they choose to come to us. So somebody was saying to me today, well, why aren't you working with this other charity? Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? And I said, I'm doing what I do because I'm directly helping the people. Yeah. Now, you know, the authorities choose to give their money to this charity, but I can't be responsible for, for what they're spending their money on. But I can be responsible for what I do. And what I do is I help people. I don't expect them to pay me and, and so forth. Yeah. So, so I'd like to kind of take a little bit of a turn on that because you mentioned that you're responsible for the part that you do. You've also talked a little bit about how if, if a missionary feels like they have to lie to maintain a relationship with a sending church or with, with an individual or something like that, that, that there's something toxic about that relationship. And I'm wondering, you know, there, there are probably more than just a few missionaries out there that are in that situation or some somewhere on that spectrum. What can we do to either recognize when a relationship is turning toxic and try to shift it, or maybe even before it becomes in that place? What can we do to begin shifting that relationship towards something that is actually healthy for both them and their sending organization or church or the people that they're connected with? I think it has to start right at the beginning. When they first begin to speak about going onto the mission field, before they ever get other people, they need to say, you know, I'm not sure what we can do. I'm not sure how effective we can be. I went on the mission field from a very successful home missions type ministry. In in home ministries, in missionary, in, in Britain, I have planted lots of churches. Mm. And so everybody expected me to go to Spain, when I went to Spain first, to plant lots of churches. Well, in my first two years, I planted two churches, mm. which any traditional missionary will tell you is a lot. Then I had a dry period of two years when nothing happened. And then in the final six or seven years, we planted over 200 churches. Wow. Now, that wasn't me physically going to each town and starting the church. That yeah. was me acquitting people that they went to those towns and started churches. And most of those churches are still continuing today and still growing. And I'm in contact with some of them, not all of them. But the, the issue is, if I'd have said right at the beginning when I was looking for support to go on the field, oh, we're going to be planting 200 churches in five, six years, which is what a lot of missionaries say, Yeah. then it's not honest. If I can say, yes, in, in you know, 15, 16 years, we planted 
possibly 220 churches. That's honest because I can show you the names of addresses. Yeah. But, but if I'd said right at the beginning we're going to do that, I don't know what God's going to do. And God can't do it. So we have to be honest right from the beginning. We say we go with a hope. We go with a hope. When Paul went off on his missionary travels, he never knew what was going to happen. Yeah. He knew he was going to take the next step and be obedient to God. And we have to have supporters that are prepared to pay not for results, but for obedience. Yeah. So the financial support is to obedience, not to success. Um, I remember when I was a child, very quick sideways off, when <laughs> I was a child, I went to a Baptist Sunday school. And the height of my year, it happened about twice a year, was when a visiting missionary came. And now we talk about British Baptist Sunday schools. They're a bit different from the American variety. Okay. Um, but they would come and they would be dressed in their conservative black flannels and black shirt, white jacket, and white Panama hat. And they would come and share stories about you know, what was happening. And perhaps some of them were doctors, some of them were managed orphanages, some of them were whatever, you know. Some were just preachers in the local church. Some were evangelists. But the, the thing that I remember most about them is what they spoke about more than anything else was the importance of having a Christian presence in difficult countries, you know, be it Muslim countries or, 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 or other countries where they had still animists, perhaps. And they, they used to talk about the, their presence in those countries being more important than preaching the gospel because the gospel was being preached by their actual presence. And, you know, we call that existential ministries, just by being there, that they're, they're, they're being, bringing the light of Christ into those countries. And I think we have forgotten that base for our min, min, missions. The base for our missions, yes, we want people to be receive the gospel. Yes, we want the gospel to be preached clearly. We want, you know, the doctors to heal the sick. We want the people who run orphanages to run orphanages and whatever. Yeah. But we need to recognize that the existence of Christ's body in different countries is just as important. We live in Germany. We're celebrating 500 years of the Reformation this year. Yeah. And in my town, in the town where I live, they have one of the biggest Christian conferences in all of Germany every year. They have the Easter conference this is one of the biggest conferences every year put on by the evangelical church. But the truth is, whilst we have the biggest conference here, the Christian community that actually lives in this town is tiny. Hmm. You could probably fit all of the Christians in our town into my sitting room. Wow. And it is a tiny Christian community. And the people who come to the conference, they don't know and they don't care because mm. they come for their Christian jamboree. But the truth is, here am I, a missionary in this town. And my being here, my presence here, is really more important than a conference where perhaps 10,000 people come for seven days. Yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, I think we need to sell this idea more that that missionaries go to be obedient. They don't go to be successful. Yeah, I really appreciated what you shared about paying for obedience or supporting obedience, if you will, because yeah. at least being an American, everything about our culture is about success and about achievement and about goals and all of that kind of thing. 
and I guess I'm kind of wondering, you know, if, if God has given someone a vision for a region or, you know, God has given somebody a number or, or something like that, how can they talk about that with honesty and bring it up and also go, you know, but, but we don't actually know what's going to happen? That's right. One of the most successful missionaries I have ever met was a lady I met when I first moved to Spain. I won't name her. She's still with us. Mm. <laughs> a very, very old lady now. But she had been in the town where I moved for 28 years, living wow. in the town, before she saw her first person come to know the Lord. She had been consistently preaching in that town. She had been in prison twice for preaching the gospel without permission. So she couldn't go on the street and preach or, you know, everything had to be done in sitting rooms or in, in private areas because we're talking about during the fascist period in Spain. Hmm. And yet this lady planted so many seeds when I first moved to northern Spain, there were just three missionaries in the whole of the north of Spain. I mean, you imagine if you want to be a missionary to Spain, where do you go to the nice areas in the yeah. south? It's warm and sunny all the time. No, no, the north needs missionaries too. When I first went there, there were three. Um, my wife and I go in, made it five. But the truth was, everywhere those three missionaries and then five, wait, we heard about this one missionary who'd been there all these years planting seeds. Now, she couldn't go back to her people and say, well, all I'm doing is planting seeds. Yeah. What she used to do, she used to say, I'm starting clubs teaching girls how to sew and make dresses for themselves. Hmm. That's what she used to do. This was her evangelism method. Yeah. And after 28 years, it worked. The first church I worked in in Spain, she planted. Wow. And I am so proud to have been connected to that lady. But as I say, what did she, I don't know what she said to her people during those 28 years. Yeah. But I do know that they trusted her. And when she said, I'm being obedient to what God's called me to, they trusted her and they supported her, especially in prayer. Yeah. I, I when The time I spent with this lady, I saw so much of the effect of prayer coming from Canada and the northern states where she was receiving her support from. And... The prayer was palpable. You could touch it. Wow. The result of that prayer. Um, you know, just walking into her house. Now, she was a lady of prayer. But just walking into her house, you could see miracles happen and people were touched. And as I, as I say, what did she do for 28 years? She taught girls how to make nice clothes. Um, perhaps if I say so, a little bit more conservative than the normal Spanish clothes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so sorry, carry on. Uh, oh, I, I was just going to say, so you mentioned that she spent basically 28 years planting seeds and then others came behind and, and basically kind of reaped the harvest, which we definitely yes. see in Scripture. You've also talked about how when you went to Spain, you had a little bit of success early on, then you had several years where it didn't seem like much was happening, and then all of a sudden there was this explosion of growth. How does our not understanding plowing and harvesting and reaping and, and all of those things play into our misunderstanding of what's happening when a missionary's out there being obedient? I think it comes down to communication. Hmm. Very early in my Christian life, I came across a Pentecostal church in southeast London. Um, later, I became an elder in this Pentecostal church. But I was amazed. The whole time I knew it, it was about 15 to 20 people, never more. And yet that giving to foreign missionaries amounted to millions. Wow. 
each year. And I couldn't understand it because only one of the people in the whole church had a really well-paid job. She was a commodity broker in the city of London. But everybody else had ordinary jobs. Some were policemen, some were customs officials, some were housewives, some were teachers. They were ordinary jobs. And yet the giving of this church amounted to millions. And the elders of this church used to spend weeks at a time going and visiting foreign missionaries in Africa, mostly in Africa, Hmm. but some in Europe and some in other places. And they would go and visit the mission field, really build relationships, long-term relationships with the missionaries in those areas. And then when the missionary said, well, I need money for this or I have a project to do that, they would come back to that little church and explain it to the church, and the church would pay. Now, I would say all of the people in the church gave sacrificially every week. But other churches in the area knew that when this church gave to mission work, they were giving to people they knew, and they held the missionaries that they gave to accountable for every penny. Hmm. And so other churches in the area started funneling their mission giving through this tiny church. (laughs) And I think in the year, I was only an elder in this church for one year. In the year that I was an elder in this church, I think their giving was about 22 million pounds. Wow. At about nearly $30 billion dollars. And from about 20, 25 people, you know, these are not rich people. These are poor people. Yeah. Um, but they had a heart for missions. And, and I think one of the papers I, I sent you some time ago, and I think you, you posted it. Yeah. I posted a paper called Teddy Bears to the Rescue. Teddy Bears to the Rescue gives an idea of how we can support in prayer and counselling and that sort of thing, missionaries. But some people have even suggested that a similar sort of support could be given in giving. Now, this isn't my area. I don't understand anything about giving and that sort of support. It really isn't something I understand. But I think the idea of little churches or people who have a real heart given to foreign missions who can go to the mission field, get alongside people and see firsthand what they're doing and how they're doing it are so valuable. Short-term missionary missions are so valuable. In the past, we have encouraged people to come here on short-term missions to spend a week with us, just see what we're doing, spend a couple of weeks or a month with us, see exactly what we're doing. The truth is when they come, it normally costs us money to have them here. Hmm. But I don't mind because when they go back, they tell other people what we're doing. It's important to just communicate the message. This is what we're doing. Again, just yesterday, a lady who's known us for about five or six years said, oh, I want to come and spend a couple of weeks with you in the in the fall. Wow. And so we're hoping she can come in the fall. She's coming from Florida, and she'll come in the fall and see literally what we're doing day by day by day so that she can go back to the churches in, in Florida and tell them. Yeah. Yeah, it's, that's important. I always encourage missionaries, have visitors. You know, now we only have a tiny apartment here, but we live in a holiday area. So there are lots of small guest houses and hotels where people can stay here. And, you know, we we welcome them or, you know, holiday rental places where we can rent a house for a week or a month. That's great. So, so Keith, 
as we're as we're starting to wrap this up, I'm wondering, is there maybe one thought that you'd really like to leave us with to kind of mull over in our minds and allow God to begin to speak to us about our involvement in supporting missionaries, whether it's emotional and prayer support, whether it's financial support and increasing that? Is there one thought that you'd like to share with us about that? Yes, everything comes back to communication. Do you speak every month, every week to your missionaries? Even if they are busy, they will be more than happy to talk to you. Hmm. Everybody should talk to their missionaries at least monthly. Yes, it's nice to get a prayer letter, but if you're a missionary in a difficult situation, the thing you value more than anything is a phone call or a a Skype call. It doesn't cost anything by Skype. A Skype call is so valuable to a missionary. And they can talk with you. You can understand better what they're doing. And one of the things we're doing now, and I'd encourage other people to do, is you you can have a group Skype call. Yeah. So, you know, a Skype call, for example, in a traditional church, a Skype call into the mission committee. I, I dream of having Skype calls into mission committees. If any mission committee wants to contact me and find out what I'm doing, I would love to have a Skype call with your whole committee. And we can talk about what God's doing on the field. And really, from a letter, you don't get that sense, however well you know the person. Yeah. But when you see a person face to face, it's a different ballgame. So contact your missionaries, pray with them online. Don't just send a little, oh, bless you, on Facebook. Actually take 10 minutes, 20 minutes, make a phone call. Um, You know, I have a deal at the moment. It costs me $3 a month, and I can phone anywhere in the world free Mm. of charge. I'm happy to phone people. So, you know, for $3 a month, you can make a difference in missionaries by Phoning your mission direct, your missionary direct. Can can you share with us how you have that three dollars a month and call anywhere? Well, it's it's I, I buy my line through Vodafone. Okay. And so Vodafone have a deal where you pay so many dollars extra on top of your normal line rental, hmm. and you can have free calling to different areas of the world. My free calling is to anywhere in North America and South America and anywhere in Europe. So it's not true to say I can call anywhere in the world. (laughs) I can't call Israel. If I call Israel, I have to pay for it or use Skype. (laughs) Okay. But but equally Pakistan, I have to pay for. But it costs me $3 a month. I know they have similar deals in America. Call, Call your phone company. They, they will know what deals they have. I do it through Vodafone because we have all of our communications in and out here are, are by Vodafone. Okay. I don't think they're the best company necessarily, but they are a very good company here in Germany. Good deal. Well, for those of you listening, I'd like to challenge you to take Keith up on his advice. And if there's a missionary that you're supporting or that you care about, take a minute to... To connect with them, maybe do the Skype call, maybe check out Vodafone, but take a minute or a few minutes to make that personal connection because not only will you encourage them, but I can say from experience, from having talked to missionaries, it will encourage you in your faith and you will be better for it as well. Keith, thank you so much for your time. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you making the time to do this. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to a wider audience. Everybody who knows me know I love talking. (laughs) Now, I told you this is going to be good, and I can't thank Keith enough for doing this. Normally, I don't share this kind of stuff, but this one was actually a little bit difficult to put together. We had some technological problems, and I just want to say that Keith was a real trooper. We actually had to record in two separate separate sessions. So, Keith, thanks for doing that. I, I really appreciate that. Make sure that you come back next week. We're going to be hearing from Rex Schnelli about the music business, fidelity, faithfulness over the years, and a church plant in Texas. 
Show notes for this week's episode are at engagingmissions.com slash Keith Smith 2. That's Keith Smith and the number 2. I'd like to welcome Denise, who recently liked our Facebook page. If you'd like to do that, you can visit facebook.com slash engagingmissions. And I mentioned at the beginning that I have an upcoming way to connect. Here's the deal. I'm going to be participating in a Twitter chat along with Kent Annan and Gina Thomas. They're both former guests of the show. They've both written books, and we're going to chat on June 1st, 2017. If you don't know what a Twitter chat is, visit engagingmissions.com slash justmissions for more information about that. And watch your email inbox if you subscribe to the newsletter for more information as we get closer to that. If you don't get the newsletter and you want to, visit engagingmissions.com slash subscribe. Thanks for listening to the Engaging Missions Show. You can find more great content like this along with show notes by visiting engagingmissions.com or by subscribing to the show in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back next week.